What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Today, we are sharing another interview that I did at CMX Summit 2021. This one is with Sahil Lavingia, who is an entrepreneur that I've looked up to for a very long time. He is the founder of Gumroad. Before that, he was the first employee at Pinterest where he actually left before his equity vested, left a bunch of money on the table, and then would go on to start Gumroad, raised VC funding, was growing very fast. That business ended up kind of plateauing and he wasn't able to keep it growing at the rate that VCs expected. And that forced him to kind of rebuild the company from the ground up. He had to let all the employees go, which was extremely difficult for him. But out of that, like the phoenix out of the ashes, it came with this new opportunity to build a company the way he wanted to. They've done a lot of really interesting things with Gumroad. For example, they don't have any full-time employees. Everyone is a contractor. They don't do any meetings. Everything is done asynchronously. They crowdfunded their last round from the community. So over $5 million was raised all by the community so their customers could now become owners in the business. He's just got a very unique viewpoint on what a business could look like and what a community-driven business looks like. Another thing that I love is they're radically transparent. He just shares all of their revenue, all of their numbers openly with everyone, all of the investor updates. It's just all open for anyone to see. So Sahil is really pushing the boundaries of what it looks like to build a business today. And this has just been a really fascinating discussion that we got to have together. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, and one more thing. Remember, we want to hear from you. It's always hard in podcasts to be broadcasting and not get to hear back from all of you, especially for community builders like you. I want to know, is this content resonating? Are you learning from it? What are your insights that you want to add? So please email us at pod at cmxhub.com and let us know what you thought of the episode. Share your own experiences, share your own insights, and we'll be picking some of your great responses to include in future episodes at the end of the episode. All right. So pod at cmxhub.com. Let us know what you think of this episode and you'll have the chance to be included in a future one. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the main stage, everybody. Okay. I wanted to take five or so minutes to talk about CMX in case you weren't aware. This is CMX Summit 2021 Rise, and I want to talk about what we do the other 11 months of the year. At CMX, our mission is to help community professionals thrive and to advance the community industry. And we do that through multiple online community spaces, training and education programs, research, events, podcasts, blog posts, newsletters. (gasps) There's just so many things. I always run out of breath trying to say them all. The CMX community is made up of almost 20,000 community professionals all around the world who are building, 
launching, scaling, and managing communities of every kind. We have free community spaces on both Facebook and Slack, so you get to kind of choose your own adventure. We also have our weekly newsletter. Every Wednesday, we send out highlights and resources from the industry, links to events, and of course, fun gifts, because is it even a newsletter if it doesn't have gifts? We have a lot of different programs and resources, and there's too many for me to mention before our next session. But I do want to talk about CMX Connect, which of course is near and dear to my heart. And you've all been seeing some fun photos from our CMX Connect hosts. This is our distributed events program. This is where the CMX community truly shines. Our Connect host program is volunteer run. CMXers host in-person and virtual events for their local community. We've already heard from CMXers in Madrid, Spain, seen photos from London, UK, and we have 50 chapters around the world. So to learn more about CMX Connect, our online spaces, subscribe to the newsletter, click the community tab at the top of the page. And we also have a CMX Summit Rise scavenger hunt going on this week. There are seven steps you need to take and tasks you need to complete to win. The first three people who complete all seven tasks are going to win a CMX Summit 2021 Rise swag box. I will be dropping that link in the chat in a moment, but back to our regular programming now. Our next guest is Sahil Lavinia, CEO and founder of Gumroad, who is here to talk about a new way on how to make work work. He's going to teach us how to say no, which is a skill I know a lot of us need to work on. So get ready to hear about becoming a minimalist entrepreneur, community crowdfunding, and changing the future. Facilitating this conversation will be our very own David Spinks, VP of Community at Bevy and the founder of CMX. Please join me in welcoming to the CMX Summit stage, Sahil and David. Hello. All right. What's up? Thanks, Beth. Appreciate it. Take it away. How you doing, Sahil? I'm doing good. It's a crazy time, I think, for everybody. So I'm just hanging in there. What's going on? I mean, there's all this NFT craziness happening, and uh, <laughs> mostly mostly uh, NFT stuff. But uh, I mean, the venture is going crazy. YC Demo Day was yesterday and today, so it's a lot going on. Yeah, I'm very excited to chat as someone who's been a fan of yours and following your journey for probably over a decade now. I don't know when did you start Gumroad originally? Uh, over a decade ago, yeah, in 20, 2011. Yeah. Yeah, 2011. I like, remember so almost... that. I was an early user, I think. And you just have an incredible journey. And I'd love to just kind of start there to kind of give everyone the context if they don't know about the journey that you've taken from Pinterest, from leaving some equity on the table at Pinterest, which is one of your claim to fames, and then starting Gumroad, raising money, not working out, and building what I think is one of the most unique companies in the world today. We'd love to maybe just hear in your own words, what does that journey look like? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I started, as you mentioned, 2011, I uh, started Gumroad. Before that, I was employee number two at Pinterest. I got my start in technology building iPhone apps, designing and building iPhone apps. It was the first, and this kind of feeds into kind of what I'm up to these days too. But, you know, the app store was the first time where like I was a kid in Singapore, Apple would effectively handle payments, distribution, legal, taxes, everything for me so I can get paid as a creator, right? I can just make apps, list them on the app store. 
And that was pretty amazing. I wasn't killing it, but I was making a few thousand dollars as a 15, 16 year old kid because of the app store. And that had just come out. And so I moved to uh, USC, moved to California to go to college. And then within four months, ended up dropping out of school, realized that if I wanted to work in the startup industry, I should just go into work in the startup industry. Like the cool thing about it is you don't necessarily need a four-year degree. And so I got my first job at Pinterest. I was employee number two. I designed and built Pinterest for iPhone, among a bunch of other stuff that I did there. And yeah, one of my claim to fames is I ended up leaving to start Gumroad before my one-year cliff. So, you know, you can do, kind of do the math on what 0.75% of Pinterest is worth today. But started Gumroad, raised a seed round for Gumroad, a $1.1 million seed round for Max Lepton, Chris Saka, first round, Excel, a bunch of great folks, Naval, and then did a Series A with uh, Kleiner Perkins a few months later. We, you know, kind of very much like the startup trajectory, right? And then did that for a while, built the team, grew the product, got traction, et cetera. I thought things were working, like the, the chart was up and to the right in the way that people talk about. And then in 2015, went out to raise a Series B and realized pretty quickly that it was not going to be the same sort of journey. You know, the, the seed round and A were, were, right? Ended up meeting with, I don't know how many investors, but I recall dozens, if not over 100 conversations with investors. Every single person passed. And we had to lay off a bunch of, we had to get to profitability effectively. Like there, there's only really three outcomes here, right? There's basically you raise more money and keep going. You sort of downsize and get to profitability. I guess you can shut down the business. You can get acquired, but there's really like, there's not that many. And the only one where I felt like we could be in control of product and really serve our creators, which is kind of the reason that we got started in the, the first place was to get to profitability. At least that would give us buffer to kind of figure out, okay, how do we want to, what do we want to do? We can still sell, we can still shut down, we can still do all these you know, these sorts of things, but at least we can kind of do it on our schedule, right? And not with our sort of our back against the wall. And so we raised, or sorry, we we ended up letting go of 75% of the company, went from 20 people down to five, got to profitable, got rid of our San Francisco office. Kind of a lot of the stuff that people kind of did in 2020, we kind of did in 20, 2015. And yeah, just kind of ran it as a, you know, ironically like. A normal business, right? Just a normal, profitable, growing software business. Did that from 2015 to 2020, 2019, 2020. And then obviously the 2020 happened. The creator economy started booming, kind of became a big buzzword. You know, everyone was stuck at home, needed new ways to make money. You know, all these offline events and trainings got canceled and moved offline, online, et cetera. So Gumroad started kind of growing, growing like a weed. We, we ended up sort of up 87% year over year. And then in March of this year, raised a crowdfunding round, $5 million crowdfunding round at $100 million pre-money valuation. But yeah, it's kind of, it's, and I guess the last notable thing about Gumroad is that we don't have any full-time employees. We don't have any meetings and we don't have any deadlines. We kind of work in this very asynchronous, almost like how open source works or how kind of the crypto kind of community seems to function, where it's this very kind of like bottoms up sort of holacracy kind of method which works really well for us. And it was really just a remnant of when I started building the team back up, I wasn't fully committed to Gumroad. I was still kind of burnt out. And so I was just like, look, you can come in. I'm happy to pay you. You know, we don't have a ton of cash, but like, you know, here's a, what I think is a fair hourly rate. You can work as much or as little as you want. And I'll put everything that needs to happen in Notion and GitHub and Slack. And we'll just run the company like that. And basically like just have been doing that since. 
We're now 48 people, I think, and we still operate in this way. We'll see how long. I'm sure things will break and we'll have to fix them. But it's fun, honestly. It's, it's really fun. And it feels like I have a new mission in life, at least in this one dimension, which is I get to experiment with how do you run a company, right? Most of the time, especially if you're doing kind of the startup thing, you kind of, there's a playbook, right? There's sort of a system assembly line almost approach to building a startup these days. And this generally happens as industries get more and more mature. But I think there's still so much cargo cult. There's still, you know, there's still so much more you can do, I think, if you're just willing to think from first principles, right? Like the world is very different today than it was 10, 15 years ago. Yet we kind of built startups in a, in a kind of a similar way. Obviously, remote was a kind of a question, no longer really a question. And so I kind of am wondering, okay, well, what else is there, right? Like once you get rid of the office, like what else does that unlock, right? I think quite a lot. And so I think yeah. I'm excited to kind of play a part. So sorry for the rant, but uh, that was no, kind no, of no. It's, I think it's important to hear your journey as we kind of dive into. I have like a hundred questions to follow up on already, but it's such a unique journey, and I like just how kind of to your point, the constraints of like, well, we didn't have the cash, or we didn't, you know, you were burned out, and so you created these boundaries around what you were willing to commit to, and out of that, out of those constraints came essentially like a whole new format of a business. And so I think it's important to have that context. And now just want to call out, you've also written The Minimalist Entrepreneur, incredible book. I highly recommend everyone read it and kind of map out like your playbook for building a company like this. I guess my first question is like, I've been seeing this growth now over, let's say like the last three to five years of people finally trying to solve for the kind of like middle of the market when it comes to businesses. Because I think the way we still think about it is almost like there's only two options. Either you're a small business. So when you think of a small business, you think of like coffee shop or something local, something physical, or you know a small creator, or you are a venture-backed startup that's going to grow extremely rapidly. And it seems like there just hasn't been an ecosystem to really support companies in the middle, where it's like you want to grow more than a small business, you do want to scale, but you're not trying to like go 10 billion or bust. Are you seeing kind of new solutions come up or do we still have a long way to go to figure out how to essentially support and fund companies that are in that middle ground? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really early still. I think the sort of cracks in the armor of sort of the venture capital ecosystem, I think started really showing up for folks around 2016, 2017, with a lot of the kind of the Uber fallout and the sort of Facebook stuff. And I think the big one really, or the big two, outright frauds, basically, you know, WeWork and, and Theranos, I think really woke people up to kind of like, the, the obviously these are extreme, extreme cases, but sort of the potential danger, right, of this kind of bandwagoning around these kind of hypergrowth, hypergrowth startups and these kind of cult of personality founders. I think it's still early, you know, three or four years into this kind of new, I think, awakening. And when I wrote that post in 2019, reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company about this kind of journey, I think a big part of the resonance of the piece was that people really felt like, oh, wow, like someone went to Silicon Valley, did the thing, raised money from these kinds of folks, and then wrote about, you know, it didn't work. It didn't work the way that you expected and still chose to write about it, right? Because you kind of end up with this thing where you just, similar to your point, like you either write about total failure or you write about how successful you are. And there's like this kind of middle ground. Gumroad is a great business. 
we make millions of dollars a year, we serve a great community of people, it's a fun product to work on, etc. I'm not going to say that it's Facebook scale or anything, but it's certainly more meaningful to me than running like maybe a, a small business in my little town. And, and yeah, so I think the minimalist entrepreneur is basically like the way that it really was kind of a response to the question that I asked in, I sort of implicitly asked in the essay, which was basically like, well, if this isn't the right approach, right? Like if building billion dollar companies is this kind of weird arbitrary binary goal, what should you do? Right. And the answer to me is not, to your point, not just running a small business, right? Because I find that, and I went through this in my own journey, I tried that. I was like, I'm going to stop thinking about startups at all. I'm just going to, I moved to Provo, Utah. I learned science fiction writing and oil painting. And I realized that I actually like having an impact on the world. I like building software and technology. I like working with other people. And so, how do I get, how do I eat my cake and have it, right? Like, how do I do both of those things at the same time? And that's really kind of what this book is trying to answer, which is one, obviously, what is the right answer? How do you get started? What kind of businesses should you build? But the more importantly to me, it's like, well, then how, right? Like, how do you actually go about doing that? Where do you start? I think is where a lot of people get stuck. Like these businesses, businesses are like this very, you know, I remember like uh, career fairs in school and like there was an entrepreneur that would always show up, right? And it was like, it was weird to me because it was like a career path. Like there was like baker or software engineer or banker and then entrepreneur. But like, that's not how I think about entrepreneurship. I think about entrepreneurship as like a part of all of these other careers. It's just a kind of way of thinking. And so that's a big part of like, I think hopefully why the book is good or interesting is because I really, I want to talk about entrepreneurship. The reason it's called the minimalist entrepreneur over here, I don't know, <laughs> is because I want to make entrepreneurship insanely accessible. And I think the right way to do that is to lower lower the stakes, like make it something that a lot more people can identify with. Because I think the vast majority of people would not identify with entrepreneur, but I think would potentially gain, gain quite a lot from, from doing it. Yeah. Aligns very well with kind of the work we do and think about community builders in the same way and empowering people to be able to access that or think of themselves that way. I'm curious, like for entrepreneurs then who are starting a business, is it as simple as just thinking about like, how big you want your business to be when you're starting out and you're kind of shaping how you fundraise and how you design it from day one? Or is there kind of just a more thoughtful approach entrepreneurs can take from day one where they can leave the options open because maybe they don't know if it's going to be a billion dollar company or a million dollar company until they get in there and start doing it? Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a big part of it is optionality, right? Like I think even just like me sort of redirecting Gumroad into this profitable path. It wasn't me saying, hey, we're never going to go do this or that, but just to give me the freedom to decide, right? And the real choice. And a lot of this sort of the first chapter or so of the book is about, like, I think the first core idea is focus on profitability. Profitability means sustainability, which is kind of like having your own boat versus venture capital, which often feels like you're treading water. You're looking at your burn rate mm -hmm. and you're like, I something needs to change here, right? Like I'm going to eventually run out of oxygen. And so that's like this, the first thing is like, I think a lot of people need to think about building businesses where there's revenue coming in basically from day zero. I would say the other really key part, and I think this fits super well into kind of CMX, is that the businesses that I recommend building all start with community. They all start with a group of people. That group of people is kind of already intimately familiar with each other. You are a member of this community ideally a pillar of the community, 
And these are all things that kind of precede the actual business part of being of business, because actually that's where all the failure happens. If you have an audience, if you have a community, if you're thinking about things like, okay, I'm going to go, you basically just go to them and say, Hey, I want to build a business. What should I do? Right. You may not even have to do that. You can just observe the problems that they're facing. And there's so many founders who get stuck even before that, right? They say, Hey, I want to, I have a, like, I want to start a business. And it's like, well, for who? <laughs> like it's kind of step zero, right? Who are you building for? Most businesses never have a single customer. So yeah, there's definitely kind of a framework, I think, in, in terms of what matters and what kinds of businesses as well, right? Like there are certain kinds of businesses that don't really lend themselves. If you do think about it, like, okay, how do I maximize optionality? Well, I have to charge money for something. And then the other side of that is to basically have almost no burn, spend almost nothing, right? These are all things that have kind of been enabled by like the no code movement and, and all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But they're, yeah, there are businesses that don't make sense. Like, for example, Facebook is probably not the kind of business you'd want to build bootstrapped, right? Because the advertising-based business model basically requires you to have hundreds of millions of users before the model really works. Because it turns out most of the ad buyers are actually federated. They're actually buying on behalf of Apple, Pepsi, Coke, Nike, et cetera, et cetera. And those people are not going to even talk to you unless you're at a scale where it takes makes sense for them to even take the meeting, right? And so you end up with this very binary thing, which is Pinterest, for example, I can kind of speak from semi-experience. You know, you basically make zero, 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 zero for like 10 years. And then eventually you have, you kind of turn on this, switch, right? And this happened with Twitter, this happened with Facebook, this happens with basically everybody, every advertising platform, which is pretty darn scary if you think about it, right? You could, you could 10, 15 years with zero revenue. It seems to work, but then you have this other problem, which is, now you have two masters that you're trying to serve, right? You have the customers, but then you also have the advertisers, right? And, and that also becomes, I think, really tricky. And so that's another thing that I try to emphasize is I much rather charge money directly to my customers, right? Like I, I like that relationship, the idea that I, I make something valuable, they see that, they pay me for it, it pays my bills and then some, and that then some allows me to like reinvest in the business and do more cool stuff, right? Yeah. And it, it's, it's kind of pretty simple, but... I just feel like, yeah, sometimes you got to say it. Like, it just makes sense to make a product, to charge for the product, make it for people who already know who you are. So you're not cold emailing random strangers about your new SaaS product, et cetera. It seems like the internet is kind of slowly starting to shift back in that direction where we expected everything for free. And, you know, you're selling your attention to now creators being able to charge for their content or things that were previously considered like should be free. I'm curious if you think or if you have an opinion on like is there a fundamental flaw in the VC format that makes it really hard to build sustainable meaningful community as a business. You know, you talked about like we work before Uber, the idea of like VCs are just constantly growing and keeping their heads above water, they're not able to kind of like take their time. How does that clash at all in your mind with their ability to be impact driven or be community driven? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a tension there, right? Like there are ways I think to do it well. And I'm not the kind of person who says, oh, all these VC backed companies are are pointless, right? Like clearly they're also creating real value for the world. But I think the core issue that I think a lot of the sort of one of the big disconnects between VCs and founders is that you know, for example, like if I love working on Gumroad, I want to work on it for a long period of time. Like I'm 10 years in, I could do this for another 10 years. VCs, 
don't work like that, right? VCs have right. a, you know, they're much more interested in IRR, a yearly rate of return that they can show their RPs. And that's just very, very, very different, right? Like that's just a totally different model. Trying to build a business over 30 years, 20 years, 10 years is very different from trying to build a business in one, two, three years, right? And VCs will say this, right? I mean, this is not something that they would even disagree with. Like Mark Andreessen has this famous line where he says, building a startup is like kind of like baking a cake in five minutes, right? You kind of like put everything and then you throw it in the oven and you hope it works. And most of the time it doesn't work. And every once in a while it does. And you play the odds, right? The sort of unfortunate nature of the industry, though, is that like nine out of 10 founders end up with nothing. <laughs> and one out of 10 ends up with everything or what have you. And that to me doesn't make sense for most people, right? And so that's the other kind of really, I think, large problem is that you have, and this is kind of getting rectified in other ways, but as a founder, you basically get one shot on goal every five to 10 years, right? As a VC, you get a hundred shots on goal every five to 10 years. It's a very, very, very different risk profile, right? And that just changes everything. Mm. Yeah, that's really true. Now that you mentioned, I'm like 13, 14 years into startups. I think I've had like three shots. Uh, <laughs> still haven't won any of them, but uh, making more in salary now than I ever did as an entrepreneur. <laughs> but so, what are the options for entrepreneurs who want to build this kind of business? And so, you talk a lot in the book about like funding it through actual profit and selling it. You ultimately decided to also raise a community round. You raised five million dollars. From the community, could you actually talk about what that looked like to raise money from the community? Who invested, and what does the community experience look like now for the people who did invest? Like, how is it actually continuing as a community? Yeah, yeah. So this kind of came out of the blue for us because I was sort of very public about this sort of not, you know, kind of the VC first bootstrap sort of second journey, and that was that was it. Like, I didn't intend for there to be. A new approach, you know, we were profitable, we were going to keep doing this thing. And then 2020 happened. And then crowdfunding, the SEC announced that they were going to increase the limit for regulation crowdfunding from 1.07 million to 5 million on March 15th of 2021. And literally, like immediately, I was like, this is perfect for us, right? Because I actually think raising money is is not bad necessarily, especially once you have a profitable business and you kind of know what you're going to do with it and you have a direction and you have customers and a community and all these sorts of things that are, you know, just much harder to get to than raising money, right? And so I, yeah, I was just super excited by this new idea that wait, like, wait a second, just like in 2015, I basically had to pick our creators over our investors and even over the, you know, many, many members of the team, right? Uh, there's sort of three constituents that I had to kind of weigh and you know end up going with. Okay, I'm creator first kind of employee second, investor third, or what have you. And what I love about crowdfunding is that it basically takes two of those cohorts and sort of those two constituencies and merges them together, right? Creators can be customers. They can also be uh, investors in in the company. And they can, of course, work for the company too. So you can kind of blend all three groups together into one pile, which is kind of the goal here for me is like, how do we... And that's partly why we have this weird way of working, you know, with all part-time contractors and no meetings and no deadlines and no calendars and, and, and of course, no office is because I really want to kind of get rid of the, just like I think, you know, reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company was about trying to kind of poke a hole into the kind of the binary billion dollar outcome, right? 
Right. I think the same about employment, right? Where you have this very kind of binary, like you're either working at Stripe or you're not working at Stripe. There's no real in between there. And I wonder if maybe 10 years from now, we'll look back and be like, oh, wow, like, can you believe that the only options were one of these two? But I can't go raise money from VCs with that pitch, right? They're not going to be super receptive to that. But what I can do is, is go to my community and say, hey, you all use the product. I think you all like using the product. I'm going to raise money from you. You can invest directly into the business. You'll get on the cap table. And we won't have to go to VCs. And we'll just have this, this kind of, we'll deepen our own relationship. And it was amazing. I mean, we raised, we had a, to allow as many people to participate as possible, we actually had a maximum check size, which is pretty rare. I think most startup funding rounds have a minimum check size. We had a maximum check size of $1,000. And we ended up with, I think it ended up being 3,000, or sorry, 7,331 individual investors contributing uh, to the $5 million max we sold out in, in 12 hours. And, uh, you know, since then, we've, we've seen a couple other startups kind of pursue similar, a similar path. Many, yeah. many people doing, you know, Mercury raised a sort of a venture round of funding, but then also opened up part of the round to their, their customers. I think they ended up with two or 3,000 of their customers now on their cap table. And to me, it just feels obvious. Like you're, these folks, you, you now have thousands of your customers who are now invested in your business, who now have yeah. financial upside if you succeed. Like that seems like, can you think of a, a better way to lower churn, you know, than yeah. making these folks investors in the upside of your business? Like I can't, I personally cannot. This is why, by the way, why a lot of companies go public, right? This is what going public does. Anyone can, you know, if you're a Tesla fan, you can go buy Tesla. And that I would argue that like the experts, like the private equity guys or the Wall Street folks, et cetera, missed Tesla. They didn't think it was going to work. And retail investors, average person was like, no, I believe in this idea or this vision or this person. And it ended up kind of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it seems to be working right now, right? Yeah. And I love that. I love sort of being able to kind of like, the masses are incredibly powerful. I think the difficult thing is getting them to align on fixing a problem at the same time, right? It's sort of the collective action problem, I think is really, really hard. And so, yeah, finding moments like this where you can kind of align 7,000 people to go out and do something that previously only, you know, if I wanted to raise a $5 million round, I would have had to pitch. I would literally, I mean, five years ago, I would have had to go fly to Sand Hill Road you know, fly to SFO, get right. an Airbnb or something, and then like spend a week or two, like literally walking down or Ubering down or whatever Santo Road and meeting with 20 different firms. And it's just a very kind of archaic process, which today, you know, in the world of COVID and Zoom and all these sorts of things, even without this whole conversation around bootstrapping and stuff, like feels so, so arcane, even though that was literally like, literally you could not raise money. Not right. if you did, if you did. Yeah, I remember that. that. Right? Years ago. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, It's wild how fast it's changing, and I think you're right. Like now, it's hard to imagine this not being the way it goes. Like it makes sense to be able to just like get your community involved and give them upside. A a lot of the people watching this, like one of the common things that is a little bit of a challenge with community is like a lot of this is volunteer driven, right? Like people volunteer their time to contribute to forums and answer questions and host events and things like that. But imagine, I mean, this is kind of the interesting thing with DAOs that we were talking about earlier. It's like, if you could give the people who are contributing and your customers and all these people who want to be involved an actual stake and actual ownership in what you're building, 
then there's the financial upside, of course, and also just like the emotional investment that comes with that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely, you know, and that's what I love about investing, even for myself. It's because I can double down on what I'm already interested in, right? Or yeah. I can say, hey, I want to be interested in this. Like, I know it would be good for me to learn about whatever topic it may be. And a good way to do that is to invest in the company. Get, get some their, skin in the game. You know, get, yeah, exactly. Get some skin in the game. Like, I have to go do all this research. I have to figure out what a safe is and like all the, that's how you learn, right? Yeah. And I, yeah, I, love, I just love that. And I think being an angel investor is, is an amazing thing. I get to learn so much. Hopefully the financial upside is there too. And with the Gumroad crowdfund of those 7,300 people, 5,800 of them, it was their first angel investment check ever that they've ever done. The first angel yeah, investment they've ever so done. Yeah, that's so cool. So it's so, empowering. It's 50, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, I've gotten emails from quite a few of them. One person emailed me saying, Hey, I invested in the Gumroad crowdfunding round. You know, this is like a sort of a San Francisco startup person, right? Has kind of earned equity, I presume, by like being an employee of, of startups but never sort of thought of themselves as an, as sort of an external like kind of angel investor. And, and often the check sizes are too high. Even if you do have the money, like $10,000 is like a big amount, which is kind of norm, you know, kind of normally the sort of the minimum he put in, I think a thousand bucks into the Gumroad round. And then he sent me an email maybe a couple months ago, you know, that was March. So it's only been, you know, five months, six months. Right. And he said, I've done 11 more investments since then. Oh, right? wow. So that's a lot. That's 11 other startups or businesses or companies or whatever that are can now are like have more money in the bank to go do whatever they're promising their customers they, they want to go do, which is the, the ripple effects are incredibly, incredibly powerful. I think when you can really galvanize the base of people, you know, at that scale. Yeah. You were the gateway drug into investing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm very, very, uh, That's very really glad. Cool. Yeah. It's a good, good kind of gateway drug. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the dynamics of the company as well. The whole like no meetings, no deadlines, no full-time employees. I think like the first thing that comes to mind for me and probably a lot of community builders or community-minded people is like, what about the culture? Like, how does that affect your ability to build relationships with your team and make your team feel like they know each other? Like, especially with remote, everyone going remote, everyone's working so hard to come up with unique ways of helping employees connect with each other. And you've kind of taken a different approach of being like, we're not actually going to talk to each other at all live. It's going to be all asynchronous. We're not going to have meetings. We're not even going to have deadlines. So we're like even kind of collaborating, but in a very passive way. So what is, yeah. how do you think about company culture in a company like Gumroad? Yeah. I mean, this is new to us too. And so I'm committed to this path, if only to run the experiment. Right. And to see, well, what do we learn from this? Because I think it's important to try these things out and to test some of these hypotheses that we haven't really tested in a while. But yeah, so just to kind of recap for folks, like our hiring process, which I think kind of gives people a good look into how we work, it's completely asynchronous. There's a five to 10 minute phone call that I do with folks, but it's not a culture fit interview. It's not a screening step. It's just for me to like spend five minutes. Literally, the only question I ask them actually is, why do you want to work at Gumroad? So I can kind of just recalibrate, you know, my mental model of what's exciting about Gumroad uh, to folks. Not, no, no surprise, like the way that we work is very appealing to these these new folks. But yeah, it's you know, they you, just like any other company, there's a job post you click through instead of getting on the phone or doing an in person interview or a pair programming challenge or what have you. We do a, a, a coding challenge. That coding challenge leads straight into a paid trial period. That trial period is between three and eight weeks 
four to six, probably closer to the average. And that's just them, literally, I mean, that's just them starting, right? Like the trial period is really just, you're starting, you're doing the job that you're, you're doing. And on Monday, I basically add you to Slack, GitHub, Notion, and then let you loose. Like there's no onboarding, there's no orientation, nothing. There's no buddy system, nothing. And it's like the way that I tell folks is it's like working on an open source project, right? Like if you're like, hey, I want to work on Ruby or Rails or what have you, you just start. You just go in and you just learn and you just could start contributing and you know you ask for help when you need it and you kind of just kind of help yourself when you know when when help isn't there and you kind of just build with an expectation that like you know you can't pick up the phone and call somebody right like you kind of have to figure out more of this stuff out yourself and yeah it's been really interesting and I've honestly I've asked the team a couple times like hey like for example one thing about Gumroad we don't have any social channels in Slack like no random no temp no off topic, like nothing. And I've asked the team, like, hey, does anyone want this? Like, and the answer is always no. Like the or the answer is not even no. The answer is just like not no response, right? Like, and I think that's partly because we're kind of self-selecting folks who who want this kind of culture, if you can even call it a culture. But I think that sort of the deeper thing that we all kind of end up believing is that look, like just kind of like going back to the binary, right? Like work is such a bundled thing where you work at a company and these people are now your friends and you now have beers with them every Friday and all of these other things kind of get bundled into your salary effectively, right? And mm. to me, I think, well, are these really the best people I want to be friends with? Are these the people I would want to grab drinks with every Friday? Like, let's be honest, if I wasn't working at this company, I wouldn't, you know? And so that's kind of just what I tell folks is like, look, like, I'm sure I would hang out with these people. I'm sure I would like them. Right. But in terms of friends, in terms of like smoking weed on Friday, like probably not, you know, like I have my friends, I have my family, I have my wife. Many of these people have kids. I think they would much rather me just give them their time back and then they can go spend it however, however they wish. It's the same approach I I take with perks, perks, equipment, nothing. We don't do anything. Uh, Mm. And it's kind of a similar thing. Like I'd rather just pay you money. And you can do whatever you want. And you don't even have to tell me. Like, I don't care. Like, it's totally up to you. And I think for our team, at least, like, it's pretty empowering. It's it's maybe not what I would recommend if you're, like, you know, just getting started and you want to enter the tech industry and meet a bunch. And yes, like, you know, being an intern. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're. I don't want to say this is better in every way than, than the old model. But for folks who are, you know, pretty established in their career, maybe they had a stint in one of the cities and now they kind of live in the woods yeah. with their family and a lot of work. <laughs> Good for guys who want to live in the woods. <laughs> oh, great. Great for guys who want to live in the woods. It's interesting. I'm sure the teammates in the woods would love to still smoke weed with you, but I think <laughs> it's, a, it's spot on. It's like building the culture for the people that it has to be right for the people in there. It's not going to be right for everyone. Yeah, and you know, I think we got, we got kind of Beth is joining us. <laughs> oh yeah, hey Beth, what's up? I'm back. Um, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I think there's a lot of people in here that definitely vibe with some of what you're saying. I think there's a couple of like question marks about some of what you're saying, which I also think is what we want. And there, speaking of question marks, there are a handful of questions here from some of our attendees. So we have a handful of minutes awesome. left. And I'd like to start with Diane Yoon, who asks, what is the strongest piece of advice you have for community builders when facing perceived failure? 
Oh, man. Well, the thing that has always served me is being open and transparent with everybody. I've done this from, you know, I don't, I, this wasn't a sort of a strategic decision, but it's just the way that I operate. I'm pretty open and transparent with everybody. 90% of the times I have calls with people, I don't have to intro myself or explain anything, give an update because everyone knows what I'm up to on from Twitter or my blogs or, or what have you, right? But it served me. I mean, speaking of failure, like when, when I had to lay off 15 out of 20 people, right? Like the team was, one, it wasn't a surprise. Everyone knew it was coming because three months or nine months before I'd said, hey, this is going to be really hard for us. I had some conversations with VCs and we're still going to try to go that way because I don't want to sort of let half the team go now, but you know, it's going to be tough and everyone was super receptive. Nobody left the company, et cetera. And so, yeah, I think like just, and even, even now the way that I run Gumroad today, I think I kind of have given myself permission to try these experiments because I have communicated these sorts of things to my audience, right? Like before I did the crowdfunding round in March, in January, I published no meetings, no deadlines, no full-time employees in large part because I really wanted to make sure that everybody investing in this opportunity knows what they're getting themselves into, right? And knows the kind of weird company culture that they are betting on. It's just really, really important to me. And even when I launched the rolling fund with AngelList last year, where I get now I get to invest in early stage startups, I had so many founders reach out to me and say, hey, I want to do this, but I can't because I have employees and I have this and I have that. Like, how do you, how do you manage expectations? And it's like, it's kind of a cheat code. It's like, well, I just tell everybody everything. And you do that frequently enough. No failure builds up big enough to feel like you can't, right? It's like, you know, you ever have like a problem with somebody and you don't say anything for a while and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then how the hell do you bring it up? Right? So my goal is always constantly sharing, being open, never letting anything kind of build up to that level, which I, I kind of use the, the metaphor of, of like a static, right? When you don't touch something for a while and you, you know, you have this like shock, right? But if you're constantly kind of grounding yourself, that doesn't happen, right? And so that's kind of the way that I think about it is just constantly ground yourself with your community, always keep that line open. And it's bi-directional, right? It's not just you at the, the whatever you call it, the pew, like, you know, preaching to the crowd or whatever, right? Like, you're just a member of this community, just, just like everybody else. And I think it's really important to kind of remember that. Yep. I like that. And you're right. I think if you wait too long to give that feedback to someone, then you're going to be like, remember that time in January when you did that thing and it hurt my feelings? <laughs> that's just not, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I know those, those conversations. It's not, they're not ideal. <laughs> okay. We've got more questions here. And I think we're talking about maybe spending a bit more time on Q&A just because we've got so many questions and people are really into this conversation. So Ronald asks, what are some key differences you see between being an entrepreneur and a freelancer? Yeah, I'll just say, well, let's, let's make these rapid fire so we can get through some more questions. Okay, yeah, let's, I'll try. I talk a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, so ultimately... I think that the core difference is is an identity thing. Like I think entrepreneurs are really associated with the thing that they're building. And, you know, I'm the founder of Gumroad and it's like hard for me to to even, you know, even if I wanted to get rid of that. I think the beauty of freelancing is that you have this like low, you know, low ego kind of approach to building stuff, right? Where I was consulting for Pinterest, I was doing stuff for Turntable FM, I was like kind of doing a bunch of stuff, almost building a portfolio of bets in a way. And I really like that approach because if one thing doesn't work out, you're you're still fine and 
the downside is you sometimes you want to make a concentrated bed. You want to work on a product for a long period of time. And actually, I'm really interested in, and that's how I, I plan to spend the next year within Gumroad is like, well, how do I make these folks who are freelancers and contractors feel more ownership? And by the way, not just feel more ownership, but actually give them ownership. How do we sort of get rid of the gap between entrepreneur and, and freelancer so that everybody is like, is kind of both? Yep. Okay. What was your first experience in virtual community? This one comes from Teresia. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in Singapore, learned iOS development off iTunes University, Stanford's uh, CS193P lectures, if anyone wants to look it up. Um, they're still there. And it was Hacker News. It was like, where do startup people hang out on the internet? Because there weren't any in Singapore that I could find. Hacker News. That's where everybody was. Even when I moved to California, I went to USC. I was like, where is every, you know, who likes, who knows what YC is? And, you know, literally one person in my class of 250 people knew what YC and Hacker News were. So yeah, Hacker News has kind of been my community for a long period of time. Very cool. All right. David, do you have any questions that you wanted to ask? More questions? Well, I, have a, I always have my good rapid-fire questions ready to go. All right, I have one, one question for you. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? The weirdest one. There was one time where I... So I got, I got it, as I mentioned, I got into oil painting. And I found a class, a local class. You know, I just Googled you know, at a frame store. There was a class in the back every Friday. And so I started going to this class. And I learned that if you have time to go oil painting on Friday... You are a very specific kind of person, which is an 85-year-old <laughs> person. Uh, and so I would, uh, it's a dream of so many retirees to get into painting and, and writing and all these sorts of things, right? And they have the time. And so I would go oil painting and it was me, you know, I think I was like 24, 25 at the time or something like that. And it was literally just me. And this is in Provo, Utah. So basically everybody else is white, but and it's literally just like a, a bunch of 85-year-old white people. And it was amazing. Like the stories, you know, the stories they would have of like Vietnam and like while we're oil painting was just amazing. So I don't know if that was weird, you know, weird just from my perspective. Different, different, I should just say. I like it. Can I ask one more? One last one? Yes. Okay. I got best permission. All right. I like to ask this question as the last question at the end of my, all my podcast interviews. So if you were to find yourself on your deathbed today... Need to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live. What would that advice be? Yeah, I would say you know ship like build stuff and do it in public because I think building stuff is for other people and doing it in public is like the best way to make friends and I think friends is and family is what life is all about. I love it. Great advice, Sahil. Thank you, David. Thank you, Sahil. Let's flood the chat with all of our favorite emojis. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Very welcome. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.